All right, well, why don't you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Before I forget, you might get out a little early today, uh, and if you do, please allow your children to finish their time in uh, children's church, because those things are very organized and structured, as they are not in here, okay? So don't interrupt what they're doing, and um, everything will be fine. All right, Mark, or not Mark, but Matthew 13, verse 53 to the end. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogues, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, Lord Jesus, um, we want to be sure to give you honor here in your house this morning. And, uh, and we want to learn from your example. And Lord, we want to examine closely some of the statements and the claims in your word. And, uh, so be with us this morning. And uh, we pray also for Roger and Hillary as they are taking a break. Just pray that you refresh them and bring them back with a nice sunburn. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, go ahead and be seated. All right. Well, let's return to verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables, that's the parable of the sower, of course, and the kingdom parables, that he departed from there, and when he came into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? So Jesus, uh, of course, has left the city of Capernaum, which was by... uh, down in the the Galilean basin. It's where he did most of all of his ministry. And then he traveled 40 miles uphill uh, to the city of Nazareth where he grew up. Um, Now I figure that, you know, every good sermon has a little bit of, uh, uh, I was going to say geometry, but geology and hydrology. Um, The Sea of Galilee, as we've probably mentioned before, is, is 700 feet below sea level. How many of you guys have ever been below sea level other than scuba diving uh, or snorkeling? How many of you guys have been below sea level? A few of you, yeah. yeah. So the Sea of Galilee, it's 700 feet below sea level, uh, and Nazareth is 1,100 feet above, almost 2,000 feet difference. Not bad in 40 miles. How many of you guys have walked 40 miles? You know, I mean, not in your lifetime, Yeah. So, you know, the geography of Israel is fascinating. Uh, We know that the Jordan River flows south from the slopes of Mount Hermon into the Galilee, but then it flows uh, out the south end of the Galilee further down to the the Dead Sea to 1,400 feet below sea level. So you have this this elevated land between the Jordan and the Mediterranean that keeps the Mediterranean from flowing into the Galilee and flooding the whole basin. So this is interesting because if, if there was a, a channel from the Mediterranean to the Galilee, the water would rise in the basin. It would overflow the Dead Sea until the water's connected to the Aqaba. That's the east, 
the eastern finger of the Red Sea. And it may happen someday, but that's a matter of prophecy, and we can talk about that later. I just thought I would set you on that trajectory. Look in the prophets and see if you can find it. As we pointed out earlier in the narrative, uh, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Uh, it talks about his own country. This is Nazareth. Um, and we said uh, way back in the introductory that Nazareth, um, introductory to uh, Matthew, the book, that it's no place to write home about. You don't visit Nazareth and go, what an amazing place, okay? Uh, as Nathaniel said in John chapter 1, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, you'll just have to come and see, Okay. It was Nowheresville, and anyone who came from there was essentially a nobody, which really makes the origins of the gospel even more impressive. As we looked at the parables uh, in the previous section, the gospel had the smallest of beginnings, but then has reached every corner uh, of the planet. It's just amazing. And so during this visit there, uh, Jesus, it says he, he taught in the local synagogue. That would be the synagogue that he actually grew up in. He was preaching to the people that watched him grow up, the adults, and then the people that, the the kids that he grew up with. What an interesting uh, kind of thing. And the people there were probably very interested in, in hearing him teach because, you know, they had heard so much about his ministry in the Galilee. And he, he, he came home. So they're, they're curious And while in Nazareth, as the text says at the end, he had performed a few miracles. We're going to come back to that whole discussion at the end. But it says, when the locals heard Jesus teach and they witnessed some of his miracles, they were astonished. Now, you can be astonished in both a good way and a bad way. What do you think the tone in the text is? It wasn't good. Okay, it wasn't good. They were astonished, but not good. It says, they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Well, what's that supposed to mean? Well, here it is. It, and you can hear the skepticism in all this. Is not this the carpenter's son? Now, mind you, uh, small beginnings. He comes from a carpenter, very much poverty. How has he come to this place from, from there? This is the carpenter's son. It's not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and his sisters. Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get these Things. And we've already talked about the nature of his half-siblings and all of that. I don't want to go into that today, but they're there, and none of them are doing this. None of them have this wisdom, these works. None of them are prestigious in any way. How did he come to this, this boy that, that grew up here? Where did he get all these things? You see, all that they know is that one day Jesus left town And now he's back with a group of disciples and he's teaching and he's performing miracles. See, he just vanished one day and now he's back. And he's he's some kind of big shot, as it were, okay? It's just very interesting. And Jesus, you know, growing up, he didn't display any of those things because his father had not yet called him into the ministry. He hadn't called him yet to do those things. But once his father did call him, Jesus got up and he walked out of Nazareth, out into the desert to be baptized by John, to be filled by the Spirit, to be tested by Satan. And then, as Luke says, he returned in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4, 14. Had things changed? Oh yes, things had changed. 
to the people of Nazareth, though Jesus was just your average guy. He wasn't a prestigious rabbi with disciples, not just one, which was traditional for disciples. He had 12 of them, okay? He was a miracle worker, but this is so weird. He was just the son of a humble carpenter, someone of zero reputation. And that's exactly how God wanted it all to be. You look at Isaiah's prophecy, speaking of the Messiah when he comes, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Nothing impressive. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus just grew up as an insignificant person. That was the the plan, an insignificant family from an insignificant town. He grew up quietly, humbly. Isaiah said there's nothing in his appearance that would draw anyone's attention to him. And growing up, he certainly in his behavior didn't draw attention to himself. Of course, he was a perfect child, which probably didn't make things easy for his siblings. Paul said, Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So what this all is saying, you know, think about this. God in the flesh, you know, the, the object of angelic adoration made himself of no reputation. He came seated on his throne in heaven, ruling as the, the, the sovereign creator over the universe, used to angels worshiping around the throne, countless numbers of them. Read uh, Revelation chapter 5. And he took on human flesh, making himself of no reputation. And then he took upon himself the role of a servant, which of course would lead him, as Paul says, to Calvary's cross. You know, what would be more humiliating than coming in the appearance of sinful, depraved, rebellious man and then dying for those who sinned against you? This is lowering yourself. This is the great condescending of God to us. He deserved to be born into riches as the heir of empire, but instead he chose to take on the flesh in the womb of a poor virgin from Nazareth. So by all appearances, his, his social situation, the, the stock that he emerged from, he was nothing special, and the people of his own village were just too familiar with him being a nobody just like them. And as the saying goes, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. That's right. Often in the minds of people, they will not allow others to rise above their former station. His own family thought that he was beside himself or out of his mind, as we saw in Mark 3.21. And even Mary, his mother, seems to be among them in the text. Jesus' half-brothers did not believe he was the Messiah until after he rose from the dead. Crazy. James, who doubted him before the resurrection, he later became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote the epistle of James, and then subsequently was murdered for his faith in his half-brother. His brother Jude wrote the epistle of Jude, but before the resurrection, they had the same position as the rest of the people in the village. It was just more than they could handle at the time. They couldn't grasp how it was possible. So instead of recognizing the truth for what it was, they were filled with doubt. So they were offended at him, But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. 
the word offended means to, to trip up. It means to cause someone to, be, to stumble. And here, of course, they stumbled away from the truth, from you know, reality, and they turned against Jesus. A.T. Robertson says that it was unpardonable for Jesus not to be commonplace like themselves. They, they would not let him rise above the ordinary, so they were offended. Now, I don't know, do you guys have affection for your hometown? Wow, there's some groaning out there. Well, Jesus was a good person, so he did. <laughs> but I wonder how it made Jesus feel. He didn't go there to make them stumble. He went everywhere preaching the word that he might see people saved. But as his motive was not met, it wasn't you know, reciprocated with kindness. He went there seeking to save the lost, and they offended, they rejected. He traveled the 40 miles uphill just to be rejected. That's, it's got to be hard. It's, it's disappointing. He knew it would happen, but it didn't change what happened. In a response, Jesus gives uh, this proverb to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. That is, a prophet will experience or can experience honor everywhere except among those that are closest to him. Why do we do that to people? It's very strange. Now, it's my understanding that this is the only place uh, in the Gospels that Jesus makes any claim to the office of prophet, and here it's only implied. But the claim is important, okay? He is indeed the prophet that Moses warned the people of Israel about, saying that God would require someone's life of them if they did not heed the words of this particular prophet. That's Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19. Now, this is important. Jesus is making one claim to the office of prophet, and there's one very specific Old Testament prophecy from Moses that mentions him. There's hundreds of others, but very specific in Deuteronomy 18, and the prophecy comes as a warning to the people of Israel. If you do not heed his words, God will require your life of you. Now, at this time in Israel, there was a messianic buzz. The scholars were all anticipating his coming. You remember all that happened at the birth of Jesus. We had the, the entourage of magi from the east. And concerning all of that, the scholars were brought in to interpret the stars, to interpret the prophecy in regard to where Jesus, the Messiah would be born, from what tribe he would come from, all this stuff. And so that particular prophecy of Deuteronomy 18 should have been on all the minds of the people of Israel. So many people were expecting the Christ. But as the prophecy was given with a tone of gravity, so the people should have been paying attention with a sense of sobriety and seriousness. No other prophet would carry as much weight as this one, and with no other prophet was so much at risk. Moses is saying that every man's eternity is at stake with regard to what they do with this prophet. And we know that to those who repent as, at Jesus' message, he is the prophet of the gospel. He's the good news prophet. But to those who reject him, he really is the prophet of doom. Jesus said, don't think that I came to just bring all this joy and peace in the world. My message will bring division. It will separate people. It'll be a message of doom to those who reject it. And he will either deliver you from the wrath you deserve or he will make sure you get what you deserve. That's in the message. He will either 
take upon himself the wrath of God for you, or he will let you endure it yourself. Those who believe will be saved from it, but those who reject him will forever be exposed to it. John gave a warning in the same spirit saying, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. People have told me so many times, Pastor Ben, you shouldn't use those passages like that. It doesn't sound loving. Right, because it's unloving to warn people of danger. It's like saying that it's unloving, or rather, it's like saying it's loving to let people just confuse water hemlock for parsley. Water hemlock is the most poisonous plant on the planet. We have it everywhere in Lewis County. That's like saying it's, it's, it's loving to let people just confuse arsenic for aspirin. I'm not sure where we get that kind of love and logic, but it's not loving and it's not logical, unless, of course, you want people to die, okay? if you want them to suffer. You know, the truth is wrath is coming because wrath is justly deserved, dangers on the horizon, and unless people repent and trust in Christ, they will run headlong into the hands of an angry God. I think Jonathan Edwards said something like that. Only the gospel delivers from death. So warn them of the wrath to come and tell them how to avoid it, okay? You know, imagine coming into your friend's kitchen and there he was chopping up water hemlock for that, that evening's dinner, thinking all the while that it was parsley. And if he was just to bite the stem off, he would be dead. You, of course, want to be loving, so what do you do? Humanity is headed for, the Bible says, eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. If they do not repent and trust in Christ, they will be damned forever. Sorry, I had to throw some King James language out there. You want to be loving, so what do you do? If what we often mean by love is we don't want people to be offended like they were at Jesus, or we don't want to upset their day, like Jesus did, or we, we don't want to ruin the relationship as Jesus often did, or, you know, we don't want people to not like us, or we don't, we don't. You know, that kind of love sounds a lot like self-preservation, doesn't it? It looks more like the love of self than the love of others. You guys, be humble. <laughs> be winsome, be kind, be loving, and warn people of the danger and the only way to avoid it. That's what Jesus was doing. And by nature, he is what? God is love, and Jesus is God, okay? So the greatest expression of love to fallen humanity that is in danger of God's wrath is to share the message of the gospel with them. Amen? Amen. Back to our text. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I want to talk about this because of many of the, the statements in the New Testament, along with one that was given in Mark in this same context, is one of the most confused. And it's created a movement in America, in Africa, uh, that is, is dangerous. Okay? Mark's gospel says that he could not do mighty works there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. What does all this mean? He did not, and he could not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. What do those statements mean? Is Jesus limited by our lack of faith? Do we put limitations on the everlasting, infinite God when we do not exercise faith? This needs to be cleared up because there are many people today, and, I, and there are many 
who embrace something called faith healing, which is a part of the word of faith movement. We've addressed it lightly when I talked about, when I talked about false teachers. My position has not changed at all. The word of faith doctrine, it essentially affirms that in order for you to be healed, you must exercise not just faith, but enough faith. Of course, they never tell you how much faith is enough. You know, you find out, I guess, when you get healed. And so if you're not healed, of course, it's your fault because you do not have enough faith. And they cite passages like this one as their proof text. They've got you. It is indeed your fault if you are not healthy. Okay? They believe that God wants all of his children to be healed, but he can only heal when we exercise enough faith. So a question is, does God want all his children to be healed in this life, but because he is limited by our faith, he is not able to do that? Or does the statement here and the one in Mark mean something different? What does it mean that Jesus did not or could not do many mighty works or miracles because of their unbelief? Obviously, there was a condition upon which miracles were performed. On the surface, it appears to be conditioned on faith alone, but from the rest of the scriptures, we learn that there is a greater condition, which is the primary condition, which actually makes faith a secondary condition for healing, for miracles, and so forth. So what is the primary condition? I don't think it's any secret to Calvary Chapel people, but everything that God does depends on what God has ordained according to his will. Everything. John says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, that is because we've asked something according to his will, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition, the request that we have asked of him. So simply put, God grants our petition when it's in accord with his will. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things, and everybody in here knows what all means, right? Okay. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So all miracles are conditioned on whether or not God has ordained it according to his will. If he has not ordained it, listen carefully, there is no amount of faith that will get him to do it. None. Okay? And if God has ordained to heal someone, he can set any condition by which he does it, and it may and it may not be conditioned upon faith. Now, those in the Word of Faith movement believe, as I said, God desires that all of his children be healed on the condition of faith, but the scriptures tell a different story. In our story, here, when Jesus was in Nazareth, God had ordained to work miracles there on the condition of faith. If they didn't have faith, they didn't get miracles. If they had faith, they got miracles. This was according to God's ordaining his will. Therefore, Jesus wasn't limited by the unbelief of the people. This is backwards theology. Jesus was limited by what his father had ordained. Do you see the difference? God set that limitation. The people did not. God set the condition. Man does not get to be sovereign over the acts of God. Man is always subject to what God has ordained. So miracles may have a secondary condition that have nothing to do with faith, and that is something God decides. God may or may not condition a miracle upon him receiving thanks and glory for it. If he knows that he will not receive glory for what he has ordained to receive glory for, guess what he will do? Nothing. 
absolutely nothing. God may condition a miracle on whether or not we ask. If you're with us in the book of Isaiah, God would not have done anything for Hezekiah if Hezekiah did not ask. He had to ask. If we ask as he's conditioned, he will grant our request. If we do not ask as he is ordained, he will do nothing. He has that prerogative. God may require the faith of another person on our behalf before he acts. We see that in the miracles where people were dead. Just to be clear, dead people don't exercise faith. Amen? Okay. And then people that were demon-possessed that wanted Jesus to be away from them. But Jesus said, no, I'm going to heal you. And of course, dead people have no will at all. And Jesus rose them according to his will. He has ordained to do some things in the absence of faith so that he might inspire faith. He wants people to believe, but if they don't believe, how is anything going to happen? So what he does is he does things to actually inspire faith in people. Like when he calmed the storm and the sea. He has ordained to do things to demonstrate purely the compassion of God. As we saw Jesus when he fed the 5,000. Well, we haven't seen it yet in Matthew because it's in chapter 14. We'll get there. He did these miracles even though his disciples were doubtful, but he looked on the people with compassion and he decided, I'm going to feed them and I'm going to do it with a very peculiar miracle. Okay? Remember the disciples were saying, Jesus, just send the people away. And he said, no, you give them something to eat. Of course they couldn't. He is ordained to do other things purely for the advancement of the gospel, which is the whole purpose of a sign miracle. If you look at the miracles in the book of Acts, you find that most were performed to validate the message of the gospel, and the majority of those healed became believers by the sign miracle performed in the, in the context of gospel preaching. Most miracles were performed on unbelievers. Isn't that interesting? How do you force that into the word of faith movement? Everything depends on what God has ordained. And God can ordain to grant whatever he wants, even if he wants to do it by a combination of secondary conditions. He can throw five or six in there if he wants. We do call him God for a reason, right? Yeah. But if he hasn't ordained it, whatever it is, he won't do it. Now, what do you think the best way to discover what God has ordained? Pray. It's just a, a mission of discovery, to pray, to ask in faith. Now, there are a number of miracles and healings that should be evaluated in this whole context, along with those who are never healed. I think the never healing uh, instances are very important in the scriptures. But when you look at the context, things surrounding different healings, you learn a ton about the way God works. You just don't know when he will work that way. Do you get it? You know, God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt purely because he promised to. It wasn't because they believed, right? God provided for them in the wilderness in spite of their unbelief and their complaining. God performed miracles not because Gideon believed, but because Gideon did not believe. Isn't that the story? Hey, Father, forgive me, or God, forgive me. He didn't say it, but it was, in other words, forgive me, I just don't believe yet. So could you do another miracle? And then another miracle. And then another miracle. And then another miracle. You know, Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, was healed of leprosy, even though he ridiculed the idea of washing in the Jordan River. Remember, Elisha said, yeah, it's easy. Just go down to the Jordan, dip yourself seven times, and you'll come out clean. And he's like, there's no way I'm doing that. That river is nasty. I'll go back to Syria. I'll find a river that comes out of the mountains. It's nice and clear. And his servant actually talked him into doing it. He's like, hey, what do you have to lose? He did not believe. 
until afterwards, until afterwards. You remember Jairus' daughter was dead. Jesus raised her. The demoniacs of Gadara were possessed. They were out of their minds. They, they wanted Jesus away from them. They did not exercise faith, and Jesus healed them. Lazarus, the story of Lazarus is interesting because, of course, he was, he was dead. He could not exercise faith, and everyone around Jesus was doubting. Oh, I know Jesus. He'll, he'll be raised in the last day. Let's be realistic about this. And Jesus is like, Lazarus, come out. And then they had to help him take his grave clothes off, cloths. Ten lepers were healed, and only one gave glory to God, and yet Jesus healed all of them. What's that about? And the one that came back and gave glory to God was a what? A Samaritan. Where were the Jews? The man with the withered hand in the synagogue was healed, not because he had faith. Remember, he was, it was staged. He was there as a trap, and he may have been in on it. But Jesus, he had compassion on him. It was a miracle of compassion. The feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle of compassion. Jesus calmed the storm when the disciples were fearful and unbelieving. They interrupted his nap, and so he calmed the storm. And he rebuked them for unbelief. You know, Paul was never delivered from the thorn in his side, even though he pleaded with God over and over again. Did the apostle Paul not have enough faith? If you dare say it, say it. (laughs) Timothy was counseled to use a natural remedy for his ailments. This implies that prayer was exhausted and God withheld healing. How many of you guys think that Elisha had plenty of faith? When he pronounced healing upon Naaman, if he would dip in the Jordan River seven times, he'd be healed. He was blind at that time. He didn't have enough faith to be healed. I, I would rather say that God had decided within the counsel of his own will that Elisha would not be healed, period, period. Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life after he grappled with the angel of the Lord. And remember, in that little jujitsu encounter, the Lord blessed Jacob, but he walked away limping. He walked away limping. The ultimate condition upon which God performs miracles and heals people is his will. There is no secondary condition that can thwart his will. There's nothing that we can do to thwart his will. Those who embrace the Word of Faith movement are oftentimes disillusioned because God does not behave the way that he thought that he was supposed to behave. He didn't behave the way that they were told that he should behave. I know many people that have lost their faith, been completely disillusioned because they bought in to what some heretic has said about faith. It's a dangerous doctrine. People will cry out to God for healing. They won't experience it. They won't experience material blessing in their lives. They're told they don't have enough faith. And so they think, well, then what's the point? I've heard, I've, I've been told some wacky stuff by Word of Faith po- uh, people. Uh, I have a, an inflammatory uh, disease called ankylosing spondylitis. It, it manifests itself in my spine. It's purely genetic. You have to have the HLA-B27 gene to even get it. Most people that have the gene don't get it, but you have to have it in order to get it, okay? A Word of Faith teacher told me that I had it because my father is Mormon. In other words, I was suffering for the sins of my father, but faith would cure me. But apparently, I don't have enough faith. Perhaps they're right. I've heard Word of Faith teachers tell diabetics to stop taking their insulin and just have faith. Every single one of them wound up in the hospital or dead. And I believe because of their tactics of manipulation, they're culpable. So I take issue with the Word of Faith doctrine and the leaders of the movement for a number of reasons. 
I've never listened to a so-called faith healer that wasn't a false teacher. And Deuteronomy 13 and Isaiah 8.20 says that this completely disqualifies them. If they're a false teacher, they're disqualified. Okay? If we were still back in the days of Deuteronomy 13, they should be stoned. It's just not a practice that we do anymore, which I'm thankful for. Every one of them that I know of fleece the flock of God for their money through various manipulative tactics. Where did they learn that from? Jesus never took an offering. And as, as Peter was approaching the gate beautiful, um, somebody was asking him for an offering, you know, the, the lame man. Peter said, look, I ain't got none of that. So much for the prosperity gospel. He says, but I, what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the man danced his way into the temple. And then Peter got beat for it. How dare you heal people? Paul never took an offering except when he took an offering for the poor church in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Also, their doctrine, it can't be demonstrated from the scriptures that all healing is contingent on faith. Many healings were not. So how can we be the judge of whether or not someone has enough faith? And this one is the most important to me. Um, If you don't have enough faith to be healed, how do you know that you had enough faith to be saved? How do you know that you're not walking among us an unregenerate, unsaved person? Especially if you're not healed. This is a dangerous doctrine, faith healing. So-called faith healers are in it for the money, the fame, the power. But Jesus was moved with compassion. Consider this little uh, comparative analysis. Listen carefully. Jesus didn't do many mighty works in Nazareth because they didn't believe. But Jesus did many mighty works in Capernaum and they still didn't believe. And he condemned them. He says, woe to you, Capernaum. For if the mighty works which were done in you were done in Sodom, they would have repented long ago. Yeah. How does that all work in the word of faith doctrine? How do those who do not believe enjoy so much healing and mighty miracles if those things are contingent on faith? One community didn't believe and Jesus did many miracles, while another community didn't believe and Jesus did almost no miracles. How do you fit that into the word of faith doctrine? It's crazy. The only way to explain it is by the fact that God is sovereign. He sets conditions for everything he does. And if he does not ordain it, he does not do it. Apparently, he had ordained in advance to have many miracles done in Capernaum to validate the message of the gospel, though few believed. And he ordained to do almost no miracles in Nazareth because so few believed. He is calling the shots, is he not? Yeah. He alone determines. So if you want to know what God has ordained, pray and do it without ceasing. Okay? I don't know what God will or will not do, but I, I like to pray and find out because okay? I like to see him work. I'll pray for the sick. I'll pray for people to get a, a good job. I'll pray for people to get a house that's good for their family. I'll pray for people's salvation, for opportunities to share the gospel. I'll pray. And when I don't know what God's will is for something, you know what I do? I pray. I like to explore and exhaust all the possible conditions just to see if God has ordained to do something. He is Lord, so I'm going to give him the prerogative to do whatever he pleases. But I've been called to pray, and so I'm going to pray. I would tell you to pray with us. We, we pray corporately on the last Thursday of every month here at the church from 7.30 to 8.15, but we begin with a potluck, so we season you up real fine. Okay, at six o'clock, worship at seven. Come join us for that. We pray here every Wednesday morning from six to seven. Come join us. It's great. We pray all week for those in need. 
for God's direction, for healing, for provision. We pray, we pray in faith without any notion that God must act. We have seen many answers to prayer. Yeah. Go ahead and stand up and let's pray. Father, you are still compassionate. You're still the God of love. You're still the God that beckons us to come boldly into your presence that we might find grace time of need. You're still the God that grants wisdom for those who ask in faith. Lord, I would pray that we don't live as practical atheists while claiming to be Christians. Christians trust you. And Lord, while your word is enough, you still communicate with us. You still grant us grace, Lord, in so many different ways, especially as we just walk in your word and experience the blessings from it. But Lord, I pray that you would protect anybody in this room from the false, I even believe, demonic notion that if they pray with enough faith, they will acquire whatever they ask. I pray that the people here, Lord, are fellowship, that they would understand fully that, that you have set conditions in all things, and primarily it's, it's under the ordination of your will. And Lord, I thank you that you're sovereign in all of those things, because if you weren't, our world would be a mess. So Lord, grant us more faith. Help us to be more believing, more trusting. And Lord, help us to continue to walk in faith when you have decided not to do what we want. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your blessing, Lord, your goodness to us. Lord, I thank you for my church family. And I do pray that you would just encourage their hearts and um, love on them in Jesus' name. Amen.